The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. Well, have you ever wondered what makes for authoritative preaching? Or as people who listen to at least one sermon a week, what makes a sermon particularly powerful? Uh, Powerful in the sense of a sermon that produces the most life change, or life change, I'd say, in terms of the most conformity to Christ, a sermon that makes you more like Christ. What makes for sermons that truly arrest the hearer to the extent that God in the moment changes you and makes you more like Christ or encourages you? Sermons that maybe just rebuke some hidden area of sin in your life or sermons that maybe just fill your sails with heaven-sent encouragement that help you to live out the Christian life or sermons that expand one's view of God and what he's done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ and rescuing your soul. Preaching like this really is preaching at its best. Preaching that does not merely offer up some man-made solutions or man-devised guidance for life, but preaching that brings the authority of God to bear upon your life. Preaching that exposes and channels God's own word and presents, us, pre- presents it to us with striking and undeniable power and conviction. I think this is how preaching ought to be. You can hear it in Paul's firm commandment to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul said this, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. In other words, this is... This is Paul's advice to this young pastor. Preach the word. That, of course, is the common denominator in all powerful preaching. It is the word of God that is preached, not human opinion, not man's stories, not philosophies of worldly wisdom, but the preaching of the word of God and preaching with authority. We also hear this in Paul's words to another pastor, Titus. After revealing two chapters of apostolic truth in Titus 2.15, Paul writes, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That's how Paul told Titus to teach in the church. Teach with, with great authority and let no one disregard your teaching. So Titus was to read this letter that he received from Paul. He was to understand the meaning of it and then authoritatively preach it in every church. Obviously, preaching that is powerful is authoritative, or preaching that is, will also be centered on the truth of God's word, divine inspired truth found only in God's word. Just as Titus did, we are to preach the authoritative scriptures. It is the word of God that nourishes our faith in the words of 1 Timothy 4.6. The word of God nourishes us spiritually. The word of God, we would also add, sanctifies us. This is why Jesus prayed in John 17.17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We are sanctified. We're made holy by the word of God. 
And apart from our understanding and believing God's word, we simply will not grow. We will not mature as Christians. We will not be sanctified. This is why the apostle Peter told us to long for the pure milk of the word so that we can grow in respect to salvation, 1 Peter 2.2. So we are to long for, for, desire the word of God, knowing that it will make us more like Christ. And so in any and all preaching that is worth its salt, really, the scriptures must take central stage or center stage. The Bible should saturate sermons if they're to have the blessing of God upon them to actually change people's lives. And if God has revealed that it is the word of God which he uses to sanctify us, and he has, then preaching obviously should major in the scriptures. We know today it's common for some preaching really to be light in the scriptures, preachers who just sort of dabble in the truth. The word of God in those sermons functions like a, a condiment on the preaching rather than the main course meal. In much that is called preaching today, the Bible functions, maybe we'd say, like relish on a hot dog rather than the main course of the meal. But in the world of preaching that's founded and built upon God's word, the type of preaching that we might call expositional preaching, which flows directly out of the scriptures, there is one essential ingredient that makes for powerful and effective biblical preaching. There are other things we could certainly mention, but apart from this one essential ingredient, I'm not sure that sanctifying preaching occurs. And this one essential element is clarity. Clarity. Clear explanation of the meaning of God's word. Clearly expositing the meaning of particular passage Particular passages in God's word is essential for authoritative, powerful preaching. Clarity in preaching requires the exposing of the meaning of the passage. And that obviously happens first in the pastor's study. Then in the pulpit, he delivers the meaning of the passage. The preacher's task is to explain what a given passage is saying with clear and compelling reasons to convince the conscience of those who are listening. Once the hearers are convinced, along with the preacher, what the passage means, then all that's really left to do is to submit to God's word, to submit to what is revealed, to surrender, we might say, to the truth of God's word. You see, when the, when the preacher clearly exposes the meaning of a given passage so that you know exactly what it means, then you have a decision to make. Then you have a choice before you. Am I going to believe this passage? Am I going to embrace this truth? Will I accept it into my life? Will I let this change the way I live? And when it is embraced by faith, then the Spirit of God will take that truth and drive it deep down into your heart and will sanctify you by it. So the goal of the preacher is first to understand what God has revealed in his word, and then through studying the Holy Spirit-inspired sentence and structure, the grammar, the word choice, understanding all of those things to come down as this is what this passage means so that then he can clearly present that truth to those who are listening, to present it in the sermon. 
So preaching that presents God's word and lays open the meaning is really what becomes effective and authoritative preaching as the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts. In this way, we could say that authoritative preaching really could be summed up as reading the Bible passage, teaching the Bible passage, and then exhorting the Bible passage. This is similar to what we find in Paul's advice to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13. He says this, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. We might say, read the Bible, clearly teach and explain the Bible, and then exhort obedience to the Bible. 1 Timothy 4.13. And this is what makes for authoritative biblical preaching, the clear presentation and exhortation of God's word. So as preachers and teachers, we must strive for clarity in our teaching. Clarity becomes absolutely essential for all powerful and effective preaching or teaching. But I would say that there also has to be a recognition in preachers or teachers of God's word that the, the authority that we possess is only extended to us through the word of God. The authority is not bound up in and of ourselves. It's not inherent to the preacher. The authority comes from the word of God, which we preach. So when it comes to preaching a sermon or feeding God's flock, the preacher does not make the meal, so to speak. God does. God makes the meal. The preacher merely serves the meal. He's the one, he's the waiter carrying the message, just carrying water for the king, presenting the truth. He just delivers the word of God. The source of the truth is God himself, not the human preacher. Power and authority in preaching are derived outside of the preacher and found in God's word. But oh, how different this would have been from the preaching of Christ. Imagine for a moment the preaching of our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he preached. When our Lord opened his mouth to teach and to preach, what came out of his mouth was direct and pure divine truth. When Christ spoke, he of course spoke the very words of God. We can only imagine what it would have been like to sit under his teaching, hearing him speak God's word because he is God, he was God. In Luke 4, verse 22, one of the responses of Jesus' teaching is recorded. Luke records the, the, the reaction of the people. He says this, And all were speaking well of him and were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Saying, Where did this guy come from, this teaching? We find other places like this, like at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest, longest sermon. In Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29, we read that when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. That's what those verses read. Not as their scribes. He was teaching one as having authority not like the scribes. So Jesus' Jesus's teaching was in striking contrast to what people were familiar with in Jesus' day, the teaching of the scribes. 
And such a difference really was there that it was shocking. It, it astounded the people. And I'd like us to open up our Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 7 as we begin our time in God's Word. Mark chapter 7. Before we turn to Mark chapter 1, I'd like you to get a sense of the scribal teaching that would have been typical of the first century synagogues. The, the first century teachers of Jesus' day. And in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees and scribes are sort of lumped in together. Scribes were essentially experts in the law. They were usually associated with the Pharisees or the sect of Pharisees, but the Sadducees also had scribes. And the scribe was a person who possessed the ability to write and to interpret texts, and they served as biblical interpreters and really gatekeepers of oral traditions that were passed down. We see this in Mark chapter 7. Look at the opening verse with me of Mark chapter 7. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat their bread with impure hands. Here we find the, really the priority of the scribes, guarding and enforcing tradition, oral traditions passed down from one generation to the next. And it is said that some of the scribes attributed their traditions clear back to Moses, or so they believed. Of course, that would be impossible to prove because they weren't written in scripture. These were oral traditions passed down. And next we find Jesus' reaction to the scribes' insistence upon tradition. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold on to the tradition of men." And he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that, I would, that I would help you is Corban, that is given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus, invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. So there you have it from our Lord's mouth. The scribes were experts in invalidating the word of God to preserve the traditions of men. And for this reason, as Jesus calls them out, the scribes were bitterly opposed to Jesus. More than any other group in the Gospel of Mark, it is the scribes who are opposed to Christ. References to the scribes outnumber references to the Pharisees almost two to one in Mark's Gospel. 
And the conflict between Christ and the scribes is really ultimately a conflict over authority. Tradition obviously was the authority of the scribes, while Christ, by way of contrast, was the authority. He had no need to cite various rabbis or quote the tradition of the elders. When Christ spoke, he spoke authoritative words of God because he was God. He is God. And in the Gospel of Mark, these competing authorities begin to clash almost immediately. Turn back, turn back with me to Mark chapter 1 to pick up where we last left off and where we see this clash of authorities begin to arise. We had left Christ on the on the sea of the seashore of Galilee, and we'll read the portion that we covered last, last Sunday and then look ahead into what we'll cover this Sunday as well. So look with me beginning in verse 16, and we'll read down through verse 28. Look with me, Mark chapter 1, verse 16. And he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants, and he went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. In verse 21, Jesus, now with his four disciples following him, leave the shoreline and they enter into the city of Capernaum. Capernaum is, is a city that was figured to have a population at this time of about 10,000 people. It was a prosperous and industrious city. We know that Capernaum had several features that made it prominent. It had a major pole station, a station, a tax gathering booth of sorts from which Jesus would call one of his disciples. We know that there was a Roman centurion with troops under him living in Capernaum. And at this point in Jesus's life, we know that Jesus was already teaching in Nazareth, his hometown, and really the hearts of the people had already turned against him. Eventually, Jesus would predict judgment upon Capernaum because they also would reject his teaching. For it would be in Capernaum that the vast majority of Jesus's miracles would be done. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus's ministry in Capernaum begins with verse 21. Look at it with me again in your own Bible, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, 
he, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. So in this Capernaum synagogue, that is what functions as the setting of the remaining details of this scene. And as we think about this place, this synagogue, it's really difficult to say historically where the origins of the synagogue came from. But scholars believe that the practice of Jews gathering on the Sabbath for prayer and for reading of the scriptures and for, for teaching began during the Babylonian exile, when the Jewish people were kicked out of their land and separated from the religious hub of their culture, that is the temple. It was when they were cut off from the temple in Jerusalem that they organized a means of religious devotion. And the synagogue arose as a means of preserving the truth. In exile, the temptation for one's religious devotion would have been for it to become entirely individualized or privatized. And the synagogue strived to preserve the congregational aspects of religious life. And so at their best, the synagogues were places that preserved the truth of God's word during exile seasons. And so it came back even after exile, although they're living in the land, the synagogue as an institution continued on as a place of teaching and gathering while they were away from the temple in Jerusalem. So these synagogues as buildings that housed this group or this meeting place, these buildings eventually became or found a threefold use. Primarily, it was a place for worship on the Sabbath, of course, like it is here. But we know that they were also used midweek for a place of teaching, almost school-like preparation. And it was also used as a place of judicial courts or deciding small cases. And any location could have a synagogue as long as they could gather at least 10 men who would gather on the Sabbath to pray. And Sabbath, the, the Sabbath worship of the synagogue was very different from that of the temple. It had no... Uh, sacerdotal rituals. It had no priesthood that administered o- over it. Instead, a new order of religious leaders arose to lead these synagogues known as the rabbis. The rabbis really led the synagogue teaching. And a typical service in the synagogue on the Sabbath would consist of, first, a, res- a recitation of the most well-known prayer of, of of Judaism. That is the prayer of the Shema coming from Deuteronomy 6.4. That would sort of initiate. And then there would be other accompanying prayers that would begin the service. And then there would be a, a reading of the Torah. That is the first five books of our Bible. And they would work through the Torah on a three-year schedule. And then they would read from the prophets. There would be a reading also just reading one of the prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah. And that was followed then by an interpretation. We might liken this to the sermon. There would be someone who would give an extemporaneous commentary teaching on the passage that was just read or one of the passages just read. Typically, this was given by a particular learned member of the congregation or the synagogue or perhaps by the rabbi himself. And we know that even occasionally visiting rabbis would be given the opportunity to give the sermon, to give the message in these synagogues. 
So this is what was happening here on this particular day. This was the kind of service that Jesus was sitting in. These services ended then with the singing of psalms. That's how they typically dismiss them. But a, a synagogue is just a gathering, a congregation of Jews who are coming together for religious purpose. In fact, the word synagogue even comes from the Greek word to gather or gathering place. And it would have been this sort of season that Jesus, or this sort of setting that Jesus entered in Capernaum. It would have been in this sort of religious service that Jesus and his disciples attended on this particular Sabbath day in Capernaum. And like all devout Jews of Jesus' day, it would have been Jesus' regular custom to attend the synagogue. And based upon the parallel account of this particular incident that we have in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 4, we know at this point in Jesus' ministry that Jesus had already been teaching in the synagogue, at least in his hometown of Nazareth. Furthermore, for, for one to teach in the synagogue, one would need to be invited. There would need to be an, an offer extended for, will you teach or will you give the sermon today? So it seems like Jesus likely was already well established in Capernaum as a teacher. And therefore, as was the custom, he was invited to, to teach on this particular day. And it might be helpful just to note how Mark uses the word immediately in verse 21. Mark often uses this word as, as simply a, a transitioning, connecting word to a, connect accounts in the story. It connects the larger narrative together. Here, it does not mean at once, as we typically understand the word immediately to mean. Mark can use the word that way. He did so back in verse 18. But other times, Mark does not use immediately that way, as is the case here in verse 21. But take note, it wasn't as if Jesus imposed himself upon this congregation, sort of busting in and beginning to teach. No, he would have been invited to teach in the customary pattern of the day. The leaders of the synagogue would allowed him and given him the floor. So this is the setting of this synagogue in Capernaum. And this is where we first encounter Jesus' authoritative teaching. And we see the reaction to it in verse 22. They were all amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as, as one having authority and not as the scribes. So Jesus' teaching was qualitatively different than anything they had ever heard or experienced before. And they were amazed or astonished. And Mark uses this word amazed or astonished five times in his gospel account. And it always records the reaction to Jesus' teaching. And Jesus' teaching here just overwhelmed the listener. It was sort of a prolonged sense of amazement that was characteristic of this synagogue on this day. And Jesus' teaching struck a blow upon this people, knocking them out of their normal state of mind. And it was particularly the authority with which, with which he taught that was impressive to them. They were accustomed to scribal teaching of the rabbis who expounded upon the tra traditions of men long handed down. The scribes, imagine them, scribes quoting scribes who were quoting other scribes, just delving deeper and deeper into the minutiae of the white spaces of the Torah. Just coming up with and creating strict binding laws just upon really the traditions of men that really governed the people's lives. But Jesus' teaching 
and his preaching was entirely different. We're not told the content of what he was preaching, but I have to imagine that would have been very similar to what he said or what he taught in verse 15. If you just look back above where Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I think Jesus would have been building upon this theme in the synagogue, perhaps expositing Old Testament passages to demonstrate that the Messiah was coming, or perhaps even indicating that he was going to be the Messiah. He was leading people in this way, presenting the truth, calling them to repentance. But on this particular occasion in the synagogue, Jesus is interrupted. So we've been considering his authoritative teaching, and now we encounter this demonic interruption. Look at verse 23 in your Bible. Just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. It appears that Jesus was not the only guest in attendance on this day in this synagogue in Capernaum. The text says that there was a man in their synagogue. Notably, I think this indicates that there was a man in the synagogue who was not normally there. He, he was a guest. It was their synagogue, and he was there. And this man was in an unclean spirit. For Mark, this phrase, unclean spirit, is used interchangeably with the, with the term demon. This was a man possessed by a demon. He, he was in or under the control of, of a demon. The demonic spirit is described as being unclean or impure, we would say one who's just utterly estranged from God. This creature had lost all moral purity, entirely impure and just foul by nature. And it seems that this demon-possessed man was in his right mind enough to be able to enter the synagogue on that day. He was not so violent to be excluded from society as other demon-terrorized individuals are in the Gospel of Mark that we'll encounter later. Apparently, this demon, though, could only stand so much of Jesus' teaching. The tension was too much, and the demon could not tolerate any more. We know that divine truth is infuriating to hearts given over to evil. And so pained was this demon that he erupted in some sort of emotional outburst or outcry. We might say a, a shriek of protest filled the synagogue on that day, unquestionably just unnerving everyone in the synagogue. And verse 24 then records the words. He, he cried out saying, look at it, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's difficult to say if, if the man is speaking on behalf of the demon or, or if the demon is speaking through the man. But either way, there's sort of a double personality happening here. And he says, what business do we have with each other? This is a, a Hebrew idiom, literally meaning what to us and to you. That's how it literally reads. What to us and to you. And, it, and it's a phrase that would have been said to, to an aggressor, someone who was attacking you, sort of saying, back off, get away from me, go away from me, leave me alone. It's interesting that the demon speaks in the plural. What do you have to do with us? It seems that he's speaking on behalf of the demonic race altogether. There could be no common ground between Jesus and the demons. All there could be was enmity. 
And the demon calls him Jesus of Nazareth, or probably better translated, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus the Nazarene. Perhaps that's a derogatory insult because we know that Nazareth wasn't a, a place really looked fondly upon. It was a small village, but perhaps it was just how Jesus was identified. He was Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus from Nazareth. And the demon says, have you come to destroy us? And it's interesting, in the original language, it's not clear whether this is a statement or, or a question. Perhaps the demon's is saying, you've come here to destroy us. I know why you're here. You've come to destroy us. Or perhaps he's asking the question, is the time now? Is this the time that you're coming to destroy us? Because the demons would have known that's what he was coming to do. The Son of Man was coming to destroy the works of the devil. Either way, it communicates a level of fear and dread in this demonic being. You see, the reality was is that Jesus had come to destroy Satan and his evil ones. First John 3.8 records this. It says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Ultimately, Christ came to defeat Satan. And one day, Satan and all of his minions will be thrown into the lake of fire. We know this. So this, this, this demon is right in understanding why Jesus has come. The destruction of Satan's rule on this planet is really imminent with the Christ man coming, with God in the flesh here. The, the king has come. And in the presence of the king, this impending doom is now placed upon these demonic beings. And he continues to say, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And we have to say, that's a true confession. The demon gets it right. Mark himself acknowledges this in Mark 1.34, that the, dark, that the demons typically get it right. Look at verse 34. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Understand that. The demons knew who he was. They got it right. And so in this way, the demons are, in a sense, reliable spokesmen for us to understand who Jesus is. He was the Holy One who came from God. He was and is sinlessly perfect. He was wholly consecrated to God. He is the Holy One, perfectly holy. And the demon himself could not be more opposite. He was an unholy one who came as a messenger of Satan. But Jesus certainly did not need this demon's endorsement. He did not need this demon's testimony. And so Jesus issues some authoritative commands. So we've seen Jesus' authoritative teaching. We've seen the demonic interruption. And now we have the authoritative commands. Look at verse 25 with me. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. So Jesus rebuked or censured this unclean spirit. And there would be no more words coming out of this being. Jesus says, be quiet. Perhaps that's not forceful enough. The root of this word can be traced back to the idea of muzzling a horse, to forbid speech altogether. Interestingly, the same phrase is found in Mark 4, verse 34, where Jesus says the same thing to the storm he sees. Be muzzled, be quiet, no more. And so with these words, Jesus silences the demon. And the demon now here submits. And next, Jesus exercises the demon. He draws the demon out with a powerful command. He says, 
come out of him. Notice that Jesus used no magical incantations here. He did not invoke anyone else's name. He just issued the command, come out of him. And verse 26 then records the response. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Judging by the grammar here, it seems like three things are happening almost simultaneously. The demon throws the man into convulsions or or spasms. And then a loud noise, likely another, uh, another unintelligible shriek, is emitted from the demon, and then the demon exits the man. The, the demon here obediently submitted to Christ's authoritative command. And it's really difficult to know why the man went into an uncontrolled spasm here. Perhaps it was a display of the demon's last ounce of malice and protest against Christ and sort of as he's leaving the man sort of shakes him and puts him into spasms. In the parallel account in Luke chapter 4, we're told that the man was left unharmed. So we know that he wasn't seriously injured here. But we're not told any other details about what came of this particular demon. We just know that he's no longer in the man. However long it lasted, this demonic intrusion and interruption in the synagogue was now over. And this brings us to the response in the synagogue. We find this response in verses 27 and 28. Look at verse 27. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. They were all amazed before, and now it's as if they're doubly amazed. It was one surprise after another on this day in the synagogue. And the whole place was simply awestruck. Perhaps there was a brief moment of silence after this demon shrieked and left the man. And then one by one, it seems, they started turning to their neighbor and sort of debating among themselves with their sort of picking their jaws up off the floor and saying, who is this guy? What what is this? And just the result of their astonishment was just an eruption of questions, wondering what has gone on here? What just happened? And look what Mark quotes as their initial comment. He says, uh, they say, a new teaching with authority. I find that's so interesting. I would think I'd be focusing on the demon, the shrieking and all the business of pulling it out, but they're still talking about the teaching. The teaching is the most important point here. A new teaching with authority. There was something fresh here. A different caliber of teaching altogether. And this new teaching had a marked authority to it to the degree that even the unclean spirits submit to the authority. They listen and they obey to it. There were Jewish exorcists in these days. We, We find references to them in like Matthew chapter 12 and Acts 19. Uh, These these exorcists typically employed religious formulas in in hopes of coaxing demons out of an individual. But that was not so with Jesus. He just commanded and they obeyed. And that's really the point. We see this even further in verse 28. Look at verse 28 with me. And immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Now, here is the temporal use of the word immediately. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere. 
It just took off like wildfire. Uh, this was a day and age before modern media, and remarkably, just by word of mouth, the news went forth into the entire region of Galilee. Everyone heard about this new teacher, this new authoritative teacher who taught not like the scribes. And in all of this, I think it's really hard to miss Mark's goal. Mark's goal here is to present to us this Christ as having an authoritative teaching. Christ's words are authoritative. That's the main idea. Christ's teaching and his words just drip with divine authority. Authority that simply cannot be ignored. And it's interesting. Mark will just continue on this theme time and time again. The demons submit obediently to Christ. And natural forces like the storm in chapter 4 will obedient obediently submit to Christ's words. But really the question that is presented is, will man submit to Christ? Will man come under this authoritative teaching? Will he bow the knee to the Son of God? We've seen that the primary command that Jesus placed upon people in his day, upon his hearers, was to repent and believe the gospel in verse 15. That was the primary command coming out of the Lord. Repent and believe the gospel. That is what every man, where every man and every, where every woman must begin their spiritual journey. They must repent of their sins and believe in the gospel, turning from sin and trusting in Christ. And yet this is the very thing that most men and women are unwilling to do. They refuse to submit to Christ. They, they don't want to acknowledge their sin, and they certainly don't want to acknowledge someone else's authority over their life. And so they minimize their need for a savior. They perhaps offer up just a partial repentance. Some will say, oh, I'll give Christ this area of my life and I'll submit to him here, but I'll keep this hidden area that I won't submit to the Lord. I won't submit this to Christ. But the idea here is that Christ's words are authoritative. So the demons obey, the storms obey, but the vast majority of mankind refuses to obey Christ. And even among the professing church, there are those who refuse to obey. Penetratingly, our our Lord put it well in in Luke 6.46. He says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you act like I'm your Lord? Why do you claim that I'm your kurios, I'm your master, but you don't do what I say? Implication being, You're not really one of my servants. You don't obey me. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? We are called to submit to Christ and his words. And his words could rightly be described as the teaching of the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have the words of Christ, as Paul calls it in Romans 10, 17. Obedience to Christ is obedience to the words of Christ, or what we might just just call the Bible. You cannot divorce Christ from his words and from the words of the Bible. A failure to obey the Bible is a failure to obey Christ. And it's sadly, it seems that many Christians have lost sight of the authoritative place that Christ's words ought to have in our life. For one reason or another, they're unwilling to come under the authority of Christ and his words. And regardless of the reason why they won't submit to Christ, it's, it really is sinful. 
Christians will be held accountable for our failure to submit to Christ. And as I thought about this, I thought, why do we? Why do Christians sometimes refuse to submit to Christ? Why is it that we can hear the words of Christ and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to obey that here and now. And I thought of five reasons professing Christians fail to obey Christ. Number one, some professing Christians refuse to obey out of, ob- out of ignorance. There's a failure to obey just simply out of ignorance. They simply don't know what Christ has said. But I would say this will be no excuse on the last day. Years of Bible neglect will be no comfort and no solace on the last day. We're, we're called to live by every word of Scripture. So ignorance will be no pass. We're called to know what God has commanded us to do and how we're to live. So some fail to obey out of ignorance. Some fail to obey because of false teaching. They've been misled to believe that partial obedience is completely acceptable by God. Or they've been misled to believe that God is really not that concerned with our obedience. And perhaps being misled by false teachers, uh, they're just unaware that they're believing the wrong thing. But again, this will not give them a pass on the last day. We are all called to hold fast to sound doctrine, to the teaching of God's word. Third, others fail to obey, and some refuse to obey simply out of discouragement. Discouragement. They feel that they just don't have the spiritual resource to obey. They rationalize and say, look, I'm too weak. My life is too hard. How can I obey? I certainly can't obey. Just my life is too filled with suffering for me to obey Christ, so I can't. And while we would acknowledge that, of course, we all walk through trials and suffering and hardship, but to claim that Christ has not given us the grace sufficient in order to obey is really an insult to Christ. It's a slight to Christ himself to say that we have no power. I can't do it. I'm too weak because Christ has said, you can do all things through me. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So we have the spiritual resource to obey in the midst of difficult times. And to refuse to obey because of discouragement is really to discredit the grace of God and to regard the death and resurrection of the Son of God as insufficient and impotent to really really motivate us and empower us to obey. So some fail to obey out of discouragement. And fourth, some Christians refuse to obey simply because they love sin too much. They, They love their sin. They'd rather live in submission to their own fleshly desires. They'd rather be their own authority and just submit to their own selves than submit to anyone else. So they love their sin and they refuse to submit their life to Christ. Rather than coming under Christ's lordship, they let their sinful passions rule them. And sadly, I would say, isn't this all too often where we all live? Struggling with their own flesh, their own desires, that are compelling us to do things that are contrary contrary to the word of God. And yet we are called to submit to Christ. So if our submission to Christ is partial, it's mediocre, it's, it's sporadic, we know what we must do. We must repent and obey and bring our life under his lordship. 
There's a final reason that I think Christians fail to obey, and professing Christians, I might add, and that is that some professing Christians fail to obey or refuse to obey Christ because they're Christians in name only. They claim to be Christians, but they've never been born again by the Spirit of God. And therefore, they have no spiritual resource to obey. They don't have the Spirit of God indwelling inside of them, empowering their efforts to obey. So yes, they have no capacity to obey Christ because they're not yet born again. They have not become a new creation in Christ. And so that's another reason that professing Christians sometimes refuse or fail to obey. Sometimes non-Christians who think they're Christians really just go through this life confused, thinking that they're headed for heaven when in reality they're not. But the fruit of it is a failure to obey Christ. That becomes the identifying sign. Jesus said in John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you continue obeying and submitting to my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. Or in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So as Christians, of course we're going to sin. Of course we're going to have times when we consciously choose to reject Christ's authority and we sin. But then we must repent and come back under his authority and ask for forgiveness, confessing our sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's the way of life that we live. It's a constant desiring to come under the authority of Christ. But for some, and perhaps some of you here today, you've never fully surrendered your life to Christ. and you've, Perhaps you've never been born again. And I would just want to say that that is absolutely necessary. You must be born again. You must be made new. And the only way that you'll ever have the power and the spiritual resource in order to obey Christ is if you've been changed by God. And if you say, well, how does that happen? I would say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. Turn from your sins and trust fully in Christ. That's the single most important thing you must do. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Cry out to Christ until he saves you. I don't care if you have to go home and pray again and again, but keep praying until the Lord saves you. That is what you must do because without his power, we will not be able to obey him. Uh, heart, man's heart is deceptive. It's been given over to sin and it will just be one constant uphill climb until you've been born again by the spirit of God. So let me tell you, if you've never been born again, if you have no power to submit to sin in your life, then repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sins. Trust in Christ. Trust that his death is sufficient for you and turn from your sins. That is what you must do. And Christians, if you're hearing this, let this be a reminder to us. Christ's words are authoritative in our lives. We must submit to him. We must come under them. So let's pray towards that end, asking the Lord for help to do that very thing.